0: I have the pleasure of being here in Washington, D.C. with Ben Lowentrip from United Urology. Ben is an expert in prostate cancer, especially in advanced prostate cancer, and has developed within his practice a superb advanced prostate cancer center. So I'd like to welcome Ben today. I really appreciate you making the huge trek here to, <laughs> to join us for, for our discussion. And um, you know, you're you're very well known, you know, for leading an effort in uh, in Aspects of prostate cancer, and I want to applaud you for that, and your group for really being out in the forefront. I mean, I think that's a, a remarkable thing that you guys have developed where you are. So, um, as a long-winded introduction, I, I, you know, how did you get started in in an in interest in advanced prostate cancer? I mean, where did that come from?
1: You know, it's 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 interesting. I would I would say that this really started with our practices um, idea to to get dedicated to some of the high-impact disease states that we see right and and um, I always had an interest in prostate cancer I did my training in in robotics and and at that time it was really just robotic prostatectomy so from the get-go I had already identified that as a specialty that I was going to be interested in Um, but but personally I found some of the more interesting and gratifying conversations to have with patients were about uh... actually the newly diagnosed prostate cancer someone's newly diagnosed with their cancer became a real point where i thought i could make a difference especially because this was right around the time that active surveillance as a viable option was becoming popular um, you know in the early 2010 or so period, Um, and so so a lot of my initial efforts when when I was approached to sort of lead the effort for prostate cancer for our group were around just making sure that patients were having the full, uh, uh, you know, discussion about the shared decision making process around their newly diagnosed cancer. Um, And at that same time, our research group was getting involved with some of these more advanced treatments, and they were kind of coming into our our sphere in that way. um, So that after a couple years, there were some real opportunities to say, okay, these are some some really impressive things we can do for our patients. How can we implement them across a large group? At that point, we were probably close to 50 doctors or so across most of the state, the central part of, of Maryland. Um, and so, you know, there were there that we needed to come up with some creative solutions, um, and then certainly in in the years since, as the, the the treatments have gotten more and more complex, and more and more options, and required more and more uh, support, uh, it's given me opportunity to kind of come up with new solutions to to work with a, an incredible team of people that that we have in our company and with with companies around the country, um, but also frankly. Just to be a little bit creative with with how to do this, um, I, I don't think I've been, you know I don't think I've come up with anything independently. I've borrowed heavily from a lot of my colleagues who had a piece here, a piece there, and tried to say, okay, I can see how this would work for us. You know, I don't think this is formulaic where one thing's going to work for everyone, and I'm learning that you know every day when I talk to people. But I do think there's some very you know core core concepts about what can what can be based
0: to, to do this well. well. You talk about the core concepts when you sit down with your team, what what are the nuts and bolts? What are those conversations like? I mean, you come and say, "Hey, hey, I was out visiting this group in Colorado and they do it this way." I mean, how do you develop and incorporate that into your your plans?
1: Yeah, I think in this new uh world that that we're in where we have a relationship with that said group in Colorado, it's a little different um, because they oftentimes are looking for us to help come with some solutions or at least to build on what they already have. So the most important thing to me is to identify the people. I think this is all based on having really good people that are really dedicated to doing this for the patients because, you know, sometimes we're going to be asking them to do things differently, not clinically differently, but differently in how they're spending their time. You know, they may be spending their time working on data mining instead of on, um, you know, before where they were involved with an infusion therapy if it's a nurse that's now helping with that aspect of it. Um, but, it's, but it's, they quickly realize how gratifying it is if you can identify a few patients to then get on those therapies uh, that otherwise may have been lost or, or delayed in their recognition. So I think, you know, first is finding the people. Both clinical and non-clinical to to do it and that includes physicians that want to be want to really champion this for their group it doesn't mean that this has to become the you know the, the core of their practice but it means that they they sort of become the the, the go-to person and can help work it across their group or go to people it's not necessarily one person um, so being somewhat uh, adaptable to, to to fit into a system is, is, is really what I'm doing now but as far as learning I mean, I think we we have opportunities to visit with a lot of our colleagues. Um, I mean, I went into a number of practices early on, whether it was to give promotional talks or to to actually go specifically to see a certain part of their practice, um, where, you know, for instance, the first step really was bone health. Um, and we went to one of our neighboring practices just across the state line in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and learned from them and they had a great model to do that. Now we took that model and we built on it to incorporate not just bone health but also all of the monitoring and maintenance that's required for a lot of these advanced therapies as they were coming along but it all started with that idea that okay I see how you can you know taking these patients out of the, the, the regular grind of a, of a busy urologist practice um, and putting them into a focused clinic is really beneficial for the, the patient and the, the practice and the providers pretty quickly realize that hey they're, they're still going to see their patients um, but their patients are getting a little different level of care um, and, and that we're able to, to identify when they really need things.
0: Yeah. In our practice some of the drawbacks or some of the, the criticisms from the doctors within the practice were um, I don't want to give up my patient, yeah. or my patient doesn't want to see a different doctor. Um, I'm sure you've struggled with that somewhat, but what have you seen in, in, in your practice on the, along those lines?
1: And, and make no mistake about it, I still get that all the time, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think, you know, it's a natural thing. We have a very personal connection with our patients oftentimes these are patients that have been in our practice for years especially if we did their primary therapy so the idea of of someone coming in and saying now you've reached this point we're just going to take them out of your practice that would be really bad but that's how we sort of had to get i think a little bit more creative and and it really led to some good things because initially we really did have all these patients funneling in to one or two providers Um, and in settings and and you know we have a not a huge geography but a pretty big geography and um, patients you know would do it because patients will go anywhere if they believe they're getting a a higher level of care but um, it was I think leading to to hurdles in getting the patients into the clinics you know if they're not uh, more easily accessible um, but also if the doctor felt like they were giving up that patient, right? So um, one of the things is by utilizing our advanced practice providers in all of our offices, and we don't really have a hub and and spoke kind of of practice, but we do have um, certain services more in certain offices, but this is now in in basically every office we have advanced prostate cancer clinics. So our, our APPs travel, So the patients don't have to. And what that means to the doctor in that office is they're still directly involved. They're there usually when the days that the APP is there so they can see the patient, if the patient has a question for them. And I think what, what everyone quickly sort of realizes is the patient's experience is as good or better, and... The the doctors can be busy doing a lot of things. <laughs> you know, there's a yeah. lot going on. None of us are, are you know, we're we're in a, definitely a needed specialty. So you think you're going to miss those those patient encounters. You know, maybe on a on a productivity standpoint, but really there's there's you know a lot that we could be doing for even more patients when we kind of right. free up those t- time. It, it
0: just takes a lot of time, and, and you and, and you struck on it. You can't get a quality visit for what the patient needs, because these are very complicated patients, in a 10 or 15 minute office visit, you miss too much. So I think it's, you know, applaud the effort because that was always a struggle, is balancing the guy that sent, the doc that sent them to you with what the patient's needs are, and and they are much more advanced than what we can offer in a regular, just fit them into my schedule. Of course. I want to get a little bit specific on you now. Um, You talk somewhat about treatments and sequencing and that's always that's the no one knows the right answer to that and uh, how do you guys sequencing what was your basic decision in, in a, a, a quick you know way and how's it going?
1: It's a, it's a great point and I would say that that getting to one of your points earlier about some of the resistance you can see from some of the partners I, I wanted to to create as little resistance as possible. Um, so one thing that I've never done is create a strict protocol. Um, you know, I don't pick which drug goes first or second with similar acting drugs. Um, I'm not gonna you know tell pay, tell people they shouldn't treat with one and should treat with the other. Um, I think there are certain treatments, though I think the fundamental principle behind sequencing for me is giving every patient the opportunity to get the benefit of each drug. So there are certain therapies that have a narrower window. Um, and I think the two most obvious ones are uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh or Provenge and uh, Radium-223 or Zofigo. Um, and so, Ident- so the way that we have built this is you know, and I always struggle to say that to, to my partners this isn't a a provenge program um, when we talk about our advanced prostate cancer program, but oftentimes that has been what the first therapy is because they're asymptomatic, mm-hmm. they're just being identified as progressing and you know, the, the certainly the guidelines promote it as a, a first line therapy and it's a it's a it's a know. long
0: acting too, so and,
1: and the concept is, yeah, with yeah. all the questions and frustrations about how you do monitor them you get it on board, and then you kind of just forget about it, right? right? So, so yeah, it's working
0: behind the scenes.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's and yeah. it's you know, and the patients love the the narrative behind it, right? The idea of building up their system to better fight the cancer. You know, it's what we all want from a cancer.
0: You treatment. show them that cartoon. They have um, a great. No, so yeah, I, the, we that, have the
1: the mechanism of the action, action cartoon yeah. absolutely, and and. Um, uh, they they're, they have some they have some really interesting stuff that I think patients do just gravitate to both the messaging and the and the visuals. So I yeah I mean I, I so I think that's a it's a good way to bring it in. It's interesting you know anecdotally because of the I'll just say challenge that that the um, the, the the reputation of SIPT seems to have with a bunch with a lot of medical oncologists. It's also helped in our efforts to show the patients the value of why they want to stay with us as a practice. Um, and it's not about a competition between us and the medical oncologists, but we fully recognize that if we do believe we can do a good job for these patients, we want to keep them in-house or at least see us as one of their main resources. And we find that often if they go to medical oncology, especially early, they just never come back. Right. Um, and and if and when we see them later, I can often see things that I might have done a little bit differently. I'm not saying that it's always better, but you know, the, the guidelines allow for some variability in, in care. Um, if you're working from that, that thought process of giving a patient at least an opportunity for every therapy to work, um, you know, I, I think that's the main goal. Um, and and in some cases having a broader mind as to what the options are. Um, I think has served us well um, because we fully understand hormonal, you know, hormonal therapies, we, we understand the immunotherapy of, of a CYP-T um, and we can now we're all in the same you know, level playing field. We're all learning about these all new these new treatments at the same time. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can continue to provide. Um, so uh, you know that so as far as further sequencing now and it's you know, it's October of 2019. I have to say that because by next month there might be two more indications in an earlier time frame. But we right. see more and more treatments moving to an earlier state. Right. I think it's going to be especially for something like, sipT uh, uh, and and for radium. Um, a lot of questions now are going to come back to okay if we're starting, some of these advanced hormonal therapies in the, uh, hormone sensitive state is when patients become castrate resistant, not only are they castrate resistant now, they've also burned their first, What well, before might have been one of their first line three therapies, right, mm-hmm. as far as one of the orals. So, um, you know, we're going to have to be a lot better about figuring out what is the best, you know, next step at that point. Uh, and and I think that's where there's already been a lot of work going on but there continues to be a lot of going to be a lot of discussion about that
0: okay now we're getting you talk about the new therapies and you know we're on the verge from the information that came out with a profound study and Mm -hmm. things like that moving on to what now is indicated very late in therapy Uh, we're talking specifically about the PARP inhibitors and um, with that comes the whole open box of germline and genomic testing Um, And it's complicated you know you stated even today at your your talk about the there's so many different guidelines that talk about different things how Mm. do you guys in in your I know it's part of your your clinic um, how do you interpret that and and who delivers the message and 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 how do you proceed from there to what they get or what potential treatments are going to be out there yeah
1: I think I think we've sort of started to work backwards on this Um, if we if we had all the recommendations that we have now when we started looking into this maybe a year and a half two years ago we might have done it a little bit differently Um, because it was it was not as challenging to to incorporate uh, germline testing in the advanced prostate cancer patients um, that had metastatic disease because we knew there was this potential for a real treatment option for them. And and
0: did you guys, were you working with the trials on those?
1: So we've been involved with some trials, not, we were not on, on, well we actually were on that trial, but just it was a difficult, uh, all these trials are somewhat difficult to find those patients, right? So, um, But uh, we've been involved certainly in, in, you know, early on and kind of been aware and and trying to be uh, proactive on this. but identifying those patients that are going to benefit from their next therapy. I mean, you know, the, the benefit of of germline testing is once you get it, it's not going to change. So um, having that information, having it at the ready and being prepared with it, I think is a part. And so we have incorporated it into our regular workings of our APC clinics for those patients with metastatic disease. Getting to some of the more complex discussions in patients earlier uh, based on the risk to their family or potentially their, their underlying risk of their cancer that may not appear to be more aggressive based on family history, that's something we're still working on and I think it, it takes a little bit more work on that end. Um, but it, it's for the patients, once you establish these advanced prostate cancer clinics, it's actually pretty easy to say, okay, you know, we, we base most of progression on uh, imaging progression or clinical progression, not necessarily uh, just PSA. Mm-hmm. So, if you see the PSA starting to creep up, that's a time to make sure you've gotten all the ducks in a row to know what's going to come next. You may still have six, nine months of time, or maybe in a year and a half of time, but once you get that information, it's going to stay valid and you want to know, okay, if this patient has, you know, uh, an actionable uh, defect. That we're prepared to, to, to act on that for for him.
0: You talk about the you know working some of these discussions earlier in, you know, pre metastatic, uh, hormone sensitive, or, or even let's go even closer to diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the the buy in or the understanding of the guys in your practice when you go out and talk to them about things like this? Like you, you know, you, you stated germline testing. It doesn't change. You know, they're born with it. So. What, how do your doctors see this as value, to for potential treatments or or prognosis down the line of what they're going to do? Because that's not where you're involved day to day with these guys. You're much later in the food chain. Yeah,
1: um, you're you're right. I mean, I think the the once again, you start from a maybe a little bit of a different premise. Uh, patients desperately want to know this, right? You know, I think if we could tell them that there's an underlying issue that might affect their family or might affect their, you know, might suggest that their cancer is worse than we think, then, then they want to know it. They probably want to know it disproportionately to what actionable things we may find because it's not that common. But, you know, I think ask they're not going to be difficult to ask the question about a more in-depth family history which is really all we're talking about for mm-hmm. the most part for those patients i think the challenge has been what you said which is was just translating that value to the providers um and and you know is it worth the time or effort it may take so you know, I've been working on ways to, to make that effort less heavy and giving patients questionnaires. I think, frankly, it's not something most men are prepared to give a detailed family history. They don't know the age that Aunt Sally was when she had her breast cancer. Right. Well, you know, yeah, So I they, think- they don't,
0: they don't even know their own Gleason score, let alone their uncle that died from prostate correct. cancer 20 years ago. Correct.
1: Right. So I think when you introduce some of those other factors that are the, the complex, complicating factors that are needed to get uh, to get a, a patient sort of indicated for these ther- for these testing, um, it's it's you know I think it it begs for a little bit of help, and I think that's one of the things that we can provide for a group is give them that help, and and it may be as simple as just a sheet of paper questionnaire for the patient to take home, which is kind of what we're working on now, or an online solution, mm-hmm. um, you know that that uh, we're working on. So I think the um, those types of efforts will lead to a better risk stratification for our patients and their families. And that's that's a part of what we do. Um, it's, a, it's a bigger, it's a harder thing to educate my partners on though, by far, right? I mean, I think-
0: Well, it's not something they're comfortable with because they don't know what to do with the answers. Yeah, and I think, um,
1: you know, I, I do think that that question is getting a little bit easier to answer, right? Because in the end, for the most part, we're not being asked to do anything with the answers other than talk to the patient, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that understanding that getting this test does not then require us to be effectively genetic counselors for the patient for the rest of their lives and for their whole family. I mean I think that was came with a little bit of initial experience but it it only takes a couple of patients to come with you that turn that are positive you know I mean my my initial experience in this was a patient that was a younger patient really worried about the side effects of of any kind of treatment but had you know low volume three plus four disease Um, who came in to see one of his, he went on active surveillance, came in to see me about nine months into that and said, oh yeah, here's the, here's my sister's, you know, uh, genetic test that she had done, you know, when she had her breast cancer and he was, you know, she was uh, like five years younger than he was and he was only in his early fifties. Does this matter? You know, and, and I realized, yeah, that does matter. I don't want to be watching you with your Gleason 7 disease and, and now a high family risk. And then we got him tested first, and he was positive. That made the, the clear choice that he went on to treatment. And he had slightly more aggressive disease. Thank Knockwood. he seems to be doing really well. But, you know, it was the right thing to do. And I had another patient with a personal history of breast cancer come in. Um, yeah, you don't see who, that very was Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a gentleman who had, you know, and and... I mean, and also was positive. So, I mean, these it doesn't take a, and that many cases for you to realize that this is happening. Obviously, the second one's a little bit more rare, but mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the patients that we're seeing every day, even if it's eight, 10, 15% of them, um, you know, it, it, it's a significant number. That, that, that adds up very quickly.
0: I know, when, when guys talk about this, and they say, well, the numbers are relatively low, and then you look at it more in comparison with the breast cancer people, Actually, more men with prostate cancer have a genetic defect than women. But we've heard for 25 years yeah. about the breast cancer genes in women, and now it's you know more you know they're saying oh, gee it's more prevalent in men, and that's just kind of eye opening when you look at it that way, because we've heard about this for so long, and I think part of it's like the you know. More recently, the Angelina Jolie effect or something, and you know, God forbid, we have to have a celebrity to come out and say he was positive for you know, for BRCA genes or something like that. But
1: yeah, if we, we ever might got, take that though, I think if we ever got to the point of prophylactic treatment, that would be that would be a big a big shift. I don't think we're even thinking about that anytime mm-hmm. soon. And I, but I think there are going to be some patients where their family histories are so revealing, and then and then they have a marker to back that up. Um, that, you know, we're, we're going to be watching them so closely. And, you know, through additional methodologies like, you know, next-generation imaging or even just MRI and fusion and all the different things we have now, you know, we may be much more aggressive in looking for those patients to be able to, to, to identify them, you know, if they're, if they're really flagged early on. Right. Um, the way we follow them may change. Um, but right now, I mean, it is still, it is the, so you asked about the value. You know, value depends on your perspective, mm-hmm. and um, I, I do think that, that spending the effort to make this happen, uh, you know, we prioritize, right? Mm-hmm. We started with the advanced prostate cancer patients, we're now moving towards the newly diagnosed ones for these issues. Um, the, the sense of urgency um, was certainly very high with those metastatic patients. Uh, But now we're starting to realize that, okay, we need to do better, you know, for these others as well.
0: Right, because, hey, like you said, we've got the newly diagnosed, and then the next step would be the at-risk patients that don't even have disease, the unaffected patients. And that's where, you know, it's probably slowly but heading that way. But again, there's no sense of urgency in them because they haven't been diagnosed. And and the penetrance of of cancer, of prostate cancer in men that have disease is not as high, as, which is why I think nobody's really talking about prophylactic. Right, no, of course not. No, yeah, of course not. But, I, but, you know, we're in the beginning.
1: Where do you think it's going? Yeah, I mean, the question is, is you have a family that has, you know, a long history and they have a BRCA2 mutation and they're, you know, and now you have the the 44-year-old who says, I'm done having kids and, and I'm really, I lose sleep at night because of this. I mean, someone will do it eventually. I won't be the one to do that. I don't think that's a, a wise thing to do. but. Um, you know you're probably gonna follow that guy from an early early age and really closely uh, because you know his father died of cancer and his uncle died of the cancer and all that stuff so I mean we see this all the time and even in those patients we haven't had the tools but how great would it be to be able to say you know your dad had this and you don't so we don't think you're at risk I mean that would be a really powerful thing to be able to tell them so I think um, or they go back to the risk of the, the, ty- the typical risk, right. Exactly, exactly. You don't have that. We don't think you have that risk of that deadly disease that probably is what killed your father, or is killing you know, or your uncle, or whatever. So, I think those are those are the we're headed there.
0: I I think you're right. And I want to thank you so much for taking your time to to speak with me today and and go over all this. And I also want to thank you for saying that your guy that was 50-ish years old was young because that's me. And I'm (laughs) feeling much better about myself right now. So I really want to thank you a lot. Thanks uh, so much, And and keep doing what you're doing. I think your, your efforts are phenomenal. And I hope that other people follow your lead.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate doing this. This is fun.